Are you ready to know what you don't know about Privacy Pros? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to the Privacy Pros Academy podcast by KZN Privacy Experts. The podcast to launch, progress and excel your career as a Privacy Pro. Hear about the latest news and developments in the world of privacy. Discover fascinating insights from leading global privacy professionals. And hear real stories and top tips from the people who've been where you want to get to. We're an official IAPP training partner. We've trained people in over 137 countries and counties. So, whether you're thinking about starting a career in data privacy, or you're an experienced professional, this is the podcast for you. everyone and welcome to the Privacy Pros Academy podcast. My name is Jamila and I'm a data privacy analyst at KZN Privacy Experts. With me today as my co-host is Jamal Ahmed, Fellow of Information Privacy and CEO at KZN Privacy Experts. Jamal is an astute and influential privacy consultant, strategist, board advisor and Fellow of Information Privacy. He is a charismatic leader, progressive thinker and innovator in the privacy sector who directs complex global privacy programs. Considered by his peers and clients to be one of the UK's preeminent privacy experts. He has the credibility and gravitas to engender confidence. He's a sought-after commentator contributing to the BBC, ITV News, Euronews, Talk Radio, The Independent and The Guardian, amongst others. His Privacy Pros podcast reaches audiences in 72 countries and is ranked the number one privacy podcast in the world, one of the top three GDPR podcasts. Jamal strives to be a great leader, listener and coach. He has grown a talented, high-performing team who protect the privacy of 1 billion plus data subjects and are international experts in data privacy, GDPR and cybersecurity. Jamal and his team are driven by the principles of simplifying and demystifying privacy, removing complexities and educating clients to forge a privacy by design culture that enables clients to build their internal privacy capability and capacity. He works with global clients across multiple sectors and jurisdictions, partnering with boards and C-suite teams. He debates constructively, challenges rigorously, questions intelligently and advises pragmatically. Alongside exceptional experience and qualifications, he has value by providing pertinent insights, bringing alternative perspectives and triggering healthy debate. I feel like I did that all in one breath. Hi, Jamal. Hey, Jamila. Good afternoon. How's it going? Very hot. How are you? I am also extremely hot. But you know what's hotter? What's hotter? Our guest for today. He is the hottest thing in data privacy. Please tell us more about our guest. Yes, we're all very excited to welcome our guest, Eduardo Ostaran, who is the global co-head of the Hogan Lovell's Privacy and Cybersecurity Practice. He is widely recognized as one of the world's leading privacy and data protection lawyers and thought leaders. With over 25 years of experience, Eduardo advises multinationals and governments around the world on the adoption of privacy and cybersecurity strategies and policies. Eduardo has been involved in the development of the EU data protection framework and was listed by Politico as the most prepared individual in its GDP. PR power matrix. Based in London, Eduardo leads a dedicated team advising on all aspects of data protection law, from strategic issues related to the latest technological developments, such as artificial intelligence and connected devices, to the implementation of global privacy compliance programs and mechanisms to legitimize international data flows. Eduardo is the author of The Future of Privacy, a groundbreaking book where he anticipates the key elements that organizations and privacy professionals will need to tackle to comply with the regulatory framework of the future. 
Eduardo is co-founder and editor of Data Protection Leader, a member of the panel of experts of data guidance and a former member of the board of directors of the IAPP. Eduardo is executive director of European Data Protection Law and Practice and co-author of Data Protection, a practical guide to UK and EU law. Beyond data protection, e-privacy and online data protection and the Law Society's Data Protection Handbook. Eduardo has lectured at the University of Cambridge on data protection as part of its Masters of Bioscience Enterprise and regularly speaks at international conferences. Wow, what a bio. Welcome, Eduardo. Thank you very much. I should add that now I'm speaking at this podcast, so I'll add that to the bio, I think. Please do. That would be amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, icebreaker question, always very random and nothing to do with data privacy. And it's something that I was talking to one of my friends about this week, so I thought I would use it. If you could domesticate any animal and have it as a pet... What would you have? Wow, uh, that's uh, not a question I was expecting. I have cats, right? Um, yeah. I don't know if cat, cat, cats count as domesticated. I don't think my cats count as domesticated. <laughs> so if I could domesticate my cat so that we could do like high fives and things like that and then put that on, on Twitter or something, that would be quite cool because, you know, I, I see that sometimes and uh, I, I wish my cats did that, but they, they just quite lazy so (laughs) (laughs) what about you Jamal if you could domesticate any animal if I could domesticate any animal I'd probably get an elephant (laughs) what would you do with the elephant like ride it to work I I would ride yeah I would ride the elephant I would uh, have fun with the elephant I would eat with the elephant I would have have so much fun and can you imagine how much stuff the elephant can remember I'd love to be able to talk to the elephant as well, but I would never have to remember anything ever again. I'd just ask my elephant. That would be good. Ride the elephant instead of going on the tube. I think we know which would win. I would have a giraffe because I'm quite short, so I could reach things in the cupboard or the giraffe could form me. I think every time I ask one of these questions, Jamal looks at me like I'm getting weirder and weirder every time we do a podcast. But it's a good way to get to know our guests. We're going to go into the privacy questions now. Eduardo, tell us a little bit about yourself growing up and how you got into data privacy. Well, um, I probably have to go back quite, quite a bit. The real reason why I got into, into this was because I was a paralegal in a law firm many, many, many years ago. Um, there wasn't anyone in that law firm that knew anything about data protection because it was the, the mid-90s and data protection didn't quite exist in the, in the real world. And someone asked a client at the time, asked a question, and someone said, well, let's ask the new guy, the paralegal, see if, if he can find the answer. And, and somehow I managed to find the answer to that question. In being 20 something, I was the instant expert in data protection of the, of the entire law firm. So, yeah, and, and things got a bit better uh, going forward, but that's how I started. Wow, and the rest is history. <laughs> the rest is history, yeah. Uh, I'm still trying to figure out whether the answer was correct at the time, but uh, I, think <laughs> it was. I hope it was. What made you stay in data privacy? You know, we said you have 25 years of experience what made you stay in data privacy and not jump ship? So, I mean, apart from the fact that it felt nice to be the, the person that knew at least something about data protection, what yeah. really, really happened was that, you know, this was happening in the, the mid-90s, 1995. The EU had just passed the directive. And what was a, a very innocent question by a client became 
a series of questions by different clients of the firm. So someone had to learn the, the area. And I thought that not having actually studied data protection law in university, and I, I went to university in Spain, I, came to uni- I went to university in the UK, years and years of the studies. And then uh, my life was uh, suddenly was about something that I had never studied at, at university. But it was fascinating because it had to do with the use of personal information. And I thought, oh, that's, that's kind of cool. And as the law evolved and, and the questions became more relevant, then uh, intellectual challenge only grew. So that's, that's how I, I got into it. With all your experience, are you able to predict a future in data privacy? Or is uh, it unknown? Well, everyone can predict the future. The question is who will get it right? The thing is, there are two things that I guess, or two or three things that you need to bear in mind in in dealing with the future of of data protection and and privacy. One is that technology is constantly, constantly, constantly changing and testing the boundaries of what we can do with information and how we can disseminate information and so on. So technological developments, the ones that we can even think about today, Will will be part of the of the driving force. Then you also need to take into account that data and, and information is so 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 valuable that when you look at data protection law, you need to take into account the fact that data is is part of what uh, rules the world today. So it's not it's not a theoretical science. It's not something that you can say well. Uh, we're talking of fundamental rights, so that trumps everything. In, mm. in the real world, it doesn't. You need to you need to be able to to see the bigger picture. So I think the the value of data and how that evolves is also another factor. And then the, the fact that all of this is happening at, at a global scale. So if you put all of all of that together, what I think uh, will happen is that the law itself and and the work that we do we'll have to adapt to the technology that is changing and mm-hmm. we'll have to take into account what is happening throughout the world. So it's only going to become more difficult, I guess. And so I think we're going to have to keep learning. You said you started your journey of data privacy in the 90s. Were you able to see where data protection was going in terms of like the GDPR coming into effect? Well, it would be really cool if I could say, yes, of course I did. Partly in answer to your earlier question of why I got into it, because I thought that, again, the, you know, the, the mid-90s or uh, late 90s, that, that was the beginning of the internet as, as we know it, the internet mm-hmm. beyond the, the pure academic world. And what I could see was happening was that, as I was saying, the data and, and the use of information was becoming so pervasive that the the rules and the laws that govern the use of that information were going to become more and more important. So that's why I I did think that there there was a future. And at the time, I I guess even my parents were saying, are you sure you want to start, you want to dedicate yourself to this area? Why don't you do litigation? Why don't you do corporate or something a little bit more meaningful? And and I thought, no, no, but there's a there's a real future in in data protection. You, it's just yeah. that not many people know about it. But so to an extent, I did I did think that that this would become as big as it has become. Although it was more of a gut feeling than real knowledge. Eduardo, I remember when I first looked at kind of first versions of the GDPR as it came out, and I remember looking at it and I was like, 
There is no way this will ever see the day of light. There is no way big businesses will allow this. I'm sure they lobby and they water it down. What was your reaction when you first saw the draft legislation? When I, I seem to remember, wow, this is ambitious. I, I thought it, I thought that was a real complex framework all put together with lots of different styles. And sometimes I compare the uh, the GDPR to a cathedral or to, to a Gothic cathedral that, or maybe would be even more appropriate, something like uh, the, the Sagrada Familia of Gaudí, where you've got all these different styles and all these different concepts put together to to make something really big and really, really spectacular. So it was a bit like that from a legal perspective, that you had rights and principles and prescriptive rules next to very woolly rules and uh, big enforcement powers and uh, big uh, geographical outreach. So all of that mixed together, I thought, well, this is this going to take a lot of work to even digest all this. We've had a lot of questions in from you, from our colleagues, from people, from our a Privacy Pros Academy. I'm going to start with one of them, which came in from our colleague, Ananya. She wants to know about your textbook writing and what went into writing it and how did you go about writing your textbook? You've got a lot of publications that I read out in your bio. How do you, and this probably will help me as a PhD student, how do you go about writing something so, so big? The textbook, the textbook we're talking about is this one here, European Data Protection uh, law and practice, and it is actually the official textbook that the IAPB, the International Association of Privacy Professionals, use for people to prepare for the exams to demonstrate that they are an expert on European data protection and they have the foundational understanding to go and help clients and really make this happen. And, and one of the things that's really fascinating, and the reason why I feel a little bit starstruck today, is this, this book that we have here, it's what we rely on to help all of our students that come and mentees that come through the academy. But it's not just the people that come to the academy. There's thousands of people all around the world reading this textbook, studying these textbooks, and really going on to have careers in data protection. And it's Eduardo that we will have to thank for putting this together, because I remember when I went and did my uh, CIPP exam, we didn't have this. There was like a handout which was uh, some stuff that Bird and Bird had put together and a couple of booklets and leaflets that the IAPP threw in our direction. And that was it. And now you have this amazing book that's really well put together, really well structured. It breaks it all down. And Eduardo, you've, you've changed the world for so many privacy professionals. So I'm just really keen to hear about your thought process behind the book. And then I want to ask you a little bit more about the actual sections that you've put together as well. Thank you. Well, the, the IAPP, European Data Protection Book, I, I shouldn't really take credit for writing it because I, it's not like I, I wrote the whole book. I'm, I'm the editor. That means that the book is written by a number of contributors. I, I have written, a, obviously, a couple of chapters of that book and I edit the whole thing. And But I think the, the, the one thing I want to emphasize is this is a team effort. It's not just me writing the whole book. But the way we approach this book, and the third edition, by the way, is about to come out. And uh, I don't know if many people know that, or maybe I shouldn't be announcing it uh, before the, the IAPP does, but there you go. The, the original edition, the first edition, which of course predates the, the GDPR, when we started thinking about it within the IAPP, and I was at the time involved in, in, the, in the real genesis of this book, we thought, let's try to summarize data protection, European data protection law, in the most 
practical possible way. This is not it is not a textbook for students so much, or it's a book for professionals. And when uh, I volunteer and I volunteer my team to write the, the book, I actually said, we're going to write this book as we would write legal advice to, to a client, uh, as we would write a memo. So try to be really practical, very precise, of course. And, and I think it's important when you write about law to be as precise and comprehensive and, and clear, obviously, as possible, as possible. But at the same time, in a very practical way that brings down the concept to a level that everybody can understand. And you were asking me about uh, why I, I write so much. I think in our profession, or at least as a lawyer, it is important to in, take look at the law and interpret it in a way that then you make it accessible to people. Something that happens a lot in our area, and, and I'm sure you, you've seen this before, is that a law gets passed, for example, like the GDPR. And everybody says, okay, we have the law. Where is the guidance? Where is the guidance? Why aren't the regulators providing guidance? Where is the, GD, the, the EDPB providing guidance? And I'm thinking, but we don't necessarily need that guidance. The law is already there. It's just that you need to read the law. But it is difficult sometimes to read the law because you need to understand where is the, the policy objectives behind it and uh, the real scope of the law and, and all that. So I think by writing about a law or a case or anything to do with this area, you really have to think it through and then try to put it in a way that people understand it. And I think that's that's part of our job and, and that's why I enjoy it uh, as well. Yeah, now, I mean, Eduardo, all, really uh, all credit to you and the team for putting it together and for taking the initiative to really say, I want to lead this. But when you read the 99 articles of the GDPR, especially somebody like me who doesn't have a legal background, it doesn't really make sense. Like, how, what do we do from a practical point of view? How do we implement that and how do we operationalize it? It's when you read sections like here, when you've got the actual internet technology and communications, the direct marketing, and the bit that you wrote in chapter 18 about outsourcing, and chapter 12, international data transfers, it's a whole mess. So having this really makes it clear for privacy professionals and, and, and for myself, really, of exactly how we should go about thinking about this stuff, what the law is actually trying to get us to do, and then operationalize and implement that to really help businesses to adopt those honest and compliant practices. And on behalf of every single person who has ever picked up this book, whether it's the first edition or the third edition, I really want to say thank you for putting this together. You really helped us to make a career out of data protection and really enjoy it and really thrive. And we owe so much to this book and I really can't thank you and, and the rest of the team enough about that. Oh, thank you. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to extend your, your thank you to the whole team behind, behind that book, because as I said, it was a team effort. But the issue with all laws, but I guess even more so with data protection law, because it's so, in a sense, business critical and so relevant to everyone's life, is that you need to make sure that the law that exists translates into practical actions, because otherwise, the reality is that if you have a law that doesn't have a, pra a practical application or that, it, that is, is not even viable as a law, then you have a completely useless law. But yeah. if you have a law that you can understand and you can kind of put in, into practice, 
then you can you can achieve two things. First, you you're more likely to be able to comply with it, and that's already a benefit. But even more important than that, you are able to sort of run a business or whatever you're you're doing with with data in this case in a way that you know you will be able to do it and that, that it will be viable and that will be in line with what the policy around issues like the use of personal information, uh, the, the direction of that policy is going. And I think it's really, really important to have that uh, long-term viability, if you want, when you, when you do something. So I think when we wrote this book, our aim was always, let's try to ensure that we just bring this into into palpable real content that people understand that, that people then can put into practice and say if i do this i'll get it right if i don't do that i, I will not get it right so i think that's a little bit the, the thinking behind how we have approached this book thank you for sharing that it's actually quite fascinating i could sit here and listen to you talk about it all day and you wrote a chapter on international data transfers and uh, you say our friend uh, max schrems has kept us all very busy on that what do you think the future is in relation to adequacy for the UK with the reforms? Well, that's the, que- the question that many people are asking. I think it's not a difficult question to answer. I-, I think that as long as the UK does not radically change its approach to data protection as a law that is there to help people and, and to protect uh, what is essentially a fundamental right, then adequacy is not in danger. And I think that we don't know what's going to happen in the UK, but the direction of travel is one that doesn't suggest that the UK is going to radically change things. So I think that, as I'm saying, unless things change very radically, I wouldn't worry about adequacy uh, for the UK. And, and I think it should be obvious to every to everyone that UK data protection law, despite Brexit and irrespective of what the data protection bill may bring, is not going to radically depart from the European approach to to data protection because it's based on the same principles, it's based on the same concepts. So I think I'm I'm relatively relaxed about, about this issue. Okay. And what are your top tips for those lawyers, those privacy professionals who are actually trying to get their heads around the standard contractual clauses and the UK addendum and the update and they does thing and they, you know, we're going through a lot of pain. What can you say to them to make it easy for them? Well, I mean, the, the issue of international data transfers is probably the single data protection issue that has been more dominant in my entire professional career. So that's, that's why that's the, the, one of the chapters I chose to write about. But international data transfers, the one thing that we must all remember is that they are always going to exist. So again, unless there is some kind of terrible, terrible, catastrophic Armageddon-style situation in the world and the internet breaks forever, the reality is that information is always going to flow. We've gone, we've, it's almost like saying we're always going to have wheels. You know, the, we've invented the wheels, the wheel at some point, we have it, we'll have it forever. So I think communications and global communication and data will stay with us forever. And therefore, international data transfers is a fact of life. And therefore, the regulation 
of international data transfers need to bear in mind that you cannot suddenly prohibit something that is happening by default. Imagine if the road traffic law said, oh, we're going to prohibit the wheel because it's causing too many traffic accidents. You, you can't. So you need to regulate international data transfers from a policy perspective if you think that what you're trying to, to achieve is the, for data to be protected globally. But that is very different from uh, prohibiting transfers. So I think it is with that in mind that we need to approach all these technicalities of the law. And the technicalities of the, of the law have only become more, more complex as time went by because the tension between the need for data flows on the one hand and operate globally on, in, at that level, and the potential access for uh, to data by government bodies and public authorities on the other is only growing. And you mentioned Matt Williams, and Matt has been quite instrumental in highlighting that tension and all the, the different European Court of Justice decisions involving the international data transfer since 2015 have been about that tension and have, have highlighted how important it is to put mechanisms in place so that the, the data is protected irrespective of the potential for access to data by governments. Yeah, absolutely. And it makes sense. And the other uh, big item that you also wrote about is outsourcing. And like you said, international data transfers will always happen, and businesses will also outsource work and work with other vendors. Uh, tell us a little bit more about why you chose to write that section as well. <laughs> outsourcing sounds a bit uh, 90s almost uh, these days, but yeah, but I, outsourcing means that it's about par you know, the partnerships we're seeing, the, 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 the fact that the organizations do not operate in isolation. And in the world of data, it is, I think it should be obvious to everybody that the way in which service providers contribute to the use of data by everybody else is so fundamental that the relationship between those who you know, using jargon, the controllers, those who own the data, those who have responsibility for the data, and those that are contributing to the processing, to that that are servicing the those uses of the data, is really, really, really important. And that relationship, of course, is already contemplated by in the law by the by the relationship between controllers and processors. But that it goes beyond what the law says because you have to ensure that as what we call processors become more and more influential and more independent in the way data is used and more a bit like controllers, that mm, relationship still has some sense or some function to ultimately to ensure that the data is properly protected, properly used and not, and not abused. So that, that's what outsourcing, uh, the outsourcing that, uh, chapter is about and, and how that is regulated and how you go about complying with that regulation in that context. So that brings me on to talking a little bit more about the textbook from um, the CIPP exam point of view. Uh, what is the best way to make the most out of this resource when, when they're preparing um, for their exams and they're preparing to serve their clients and preparing to best serve their organizations? Well, I guess first you need to read it. And I, I think it's important to read it uh, in a way that um, 
it's kind of open-minded in the, in the sense that the data protect, and that's not just about this book, it's in general about data protection, in, that, in the sense that it's made up so many different elements. You've got this whole idea of, of principles and data protection law from you know the, the very early on was meant to be less prescriptive and more principle principle based. So there are chapters in this book talk, that talk about the principles and about the local grounds for processing. So they, that those are super super important concepts that are a little bit abstract in a way, in the sense that. Is not uh, super prescriptive what you need to do to comply with those uh, principles and those, uh, or, or to find a suitable lawful ground. So I think you need to approach again th that bit of the of the law, and, and as we are contemplating in the book, from that slightly sort of creative uh, perspective. Then there are other aspects of the book that are slightly more prescriptive perhaps, all the bits about accountability or data protection by design and by default or data protection impact assessments and, and obviously data security, all those things are more practical in a way. And it's more about understanding not just the why, which is more the first bit, but the how and how to do a data protection impact assessment and how to rely on uh, standard contractual clauses or how to ensure that you know how to report a personal data breach. So those are the more practical uh, side of things. And then, of course, it's really important to not forget that data protection law is about people. It's about our digital existence, and therefore the rights of individuals are an important element of what data, European data protection law is all about. And But again, rights are never or hardly ever absolute rights because you know my rights may conflict with someone else's rights and we need to bear all of that in, in mind. And I think the whole area of data protection rights is also very important to, to understand from that perspective that it's not all sort of black and white. It's you, you, need, you need to be able to operate in a situation where you understand the importance of everyone's rights but putting putting that into into a practical context. So, uh, as I say, different bits of of the law, like different bits of the book, require slightly different mindset, if you want. But uh, you have to approach it uh, like that, and uh, and hopefully it will make sense. All right. So for everyone listening, what Eduardo is saying, the man behind the book, is when you pick up the textbook or when you when you pick up the book, you have to have an open mind. You have to realize that this law is actually more principle based rather than prescriptive. And therefore, you should approach the book like that. There are going to be elements that are prescriptive around the accountability side of things, such as how to do the data protection impact assessments, making sure you get the standard contractual clauses and all of those elements, right? But fundamentally, we should always remember that it comes down to people and people's rights. And even then, not every single right is absolute. Bar the right to object to uh, direct marketing, there are no absolute rights. And we have to think about all of that. And we also have to remember that there is not necessarily going to be a black and white answer that they're going to find in the textbook for every single scenario. They have to be led by the principles and just be guided uh, by that. And different sections of the book will require a different mindset to really get the most out of it. Does that sound about right, Eduardo? Yeah, I think that 
there isn't a, a black and white answer. It's the, it's the answer to all the questions around data protection in, in the sense that it's not just data protection law, it's all laws. Maybe, maybe not tax law, but uh, law is not mathematics. And therefore, you need to balance things out. And data protection, particularly the, one of the big uh, ingredients, if you want, or, or one of the big changes that the GDPR introduced was this idea of balancing different interests. And the risk-based approach is all about that. It's about making sure that an obligation in a given article in the GDPR may be interpreted in slightly different ways, depending on the specific case and depending on the nature of the data and depending on, on, on the use of that data and depending on how obvious it is that a, a, a given use of data is taking place, how obvious it is to the individual. Those are real life factors that affect how the law is understood and interpreted. And I know it makes it more difficult, but you could say, oh, then it's super difficult to understand. But at the same time, you could also say that common sense has a role to play here in understanding the significance and, the, and how onerous some of the obligations may or may not be. Jamal, you use the textbook in the Privacy Pros Academy um, and you also use the C5 formula. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, how you incorporate the textbook into the academy as well? The C5 formula is all about the five Cs that we help, uh, or that, that, that I live by, and I, I get my mentees to follow in the academy to guarantee success. So the first C is for clarity. We need to really understand and get clear on what is it that is required from a European data protection law. What are they trying to get us to do? What are they trying to protect against? What are the harms? What are the risks? And... Again, clarity comes from the book. The book really helps us to get that clarity. Once you have clarity, it gives you the second C, which is confidence. Now that I know I'm clear on what this means, what I need to do, how I need to go and serve someone, I have confidence going and giving advice. I have confidence going and carrying things out. So once you have the confidence and the clarity, you become credible, right? It allows you to be credible. You can go and speak to clients. They they can sense the confidence and they know that you're clear because... If you are clear on something, you can explain it to somebody in a very simple way. So the stakeholders who are not really not privacy professionals, they're not really legally educated, they just want to hit their business objectives. Now they understand why this matters and what you need to do. And then they see you as somebody competent. So the clarity and the conf- the clarity and the confidence gives the credibility. And because you've now got the credibility coupled with the clarity and the confidence, it gives you that competence. And the final thing we do is we wrap all of that around a powerful community of like-minded individuals who are all working towards being the best they can be to really make sure that everyone else is on board and helping them to, to, to really thrive. So you've got the five C's, you've got the clarity, you've got the confidence, you've got the credibility, the competence, and finally that powerful, supportive community. I like that. <laughs> Eduardo, we've had some questions from some other people. We've had one in from Emma Martins, who's the commissioner for Guernsey, and she wants to know, how can we help to keep data protection relevant to the wider community when there are so many competing demands, pressures, challenges in everyone's lives at the moment? Oh, wow. First of all, I'm not sure I'm, I'm the most qualified to, to help a, a regulator or a pretty difficult job of making data protection relevant to a community. The, the way I, I look at this is that data protection, I think, is one of the most relevant things to everyone. And, and the reason why I, I think that is because 
I mean, the words data protection sound very technical and, and people don't go about to supermarket and say, oh, what do you think of data protection? Or how is your data protection today? But the reality is data is us, right? And data is us when we operate online on the internet, when we pay, when we use uh, mobile phones, when we use devices, when we drive our cars, when we turn on the lights, when we turn off the lights, when, uh, when we cook, when we read, when we shop. That's us, right? But that's data. And therefore, it's really important that the protection of data is a protection of us as individuals. And I think that is the starting point of, of how you make data protection relevant, because you need to, I think it's really, really important for all of us, everyone here, to understand that, again, data is ours, and that the way in which we behave is is visible and therefore the protection of of how we behave is i think is probably one of the most important things to to all of us so i think then you need to articulate that in a more uh, using uh, jamal's uh excuse in a in a clearer uh, more credible <laughs> way and all that but Ultimately, it's about that. We've had another question in. It's from one of our mentees at the Privacy Pros Academy, Ashutosh. He would like to know, what is the privacy issue that you come across most frequently at work and how do you deal with it? The the number one issue is anything to do with international data transfers somehow. I think that is because at least in the in the work I do with uh, multinationals and global companies and those type of uh, players, their ability to ensure that data can flow globally, whether it is just because they want their, I don't know, their HR data to be visible or or, or use uh, global vendors or cloud service providers or reach out and grow our audience, all of these things that are, that are happening, that triggers a lot of queries about international data transfers because what I was saying earlier, there's this tension between the protection of the data on one hand, and then the uh, the ability of government bodies to access information throughout the world and all that. So that is definitely the number one word generator for us. Eduardo, I have a question on that, actually. So when it comes to multinational organizations, one of the things in place for them to share information across all of their offices and to access it from different locations across the world is obviously the binding corporate rules. And to get the binding corporate rules, you have to go to the supervisory authority and get them to agree on it. And there's some organization that say, look, we don't want to go and talk to the authorities. We don't want to be on their radar. Uh, so let's put in place an intra-group agreement. What are your thoughts on that? Now we're getting really technical. But <laughs> uh, so an intra-group agreement is, is probably the most frequently used tool by global organizations to enable them to lawfully transfer data internationally. And the concept, in a sense, is, is very very straightforward, and it's in the in the in the title. It's like it's an agreement between entities of the same group, and what and that agreement is trying to achieve is to ensure that all those entities throughout the world, all those companies, affiliates, and so on that have access to data from each other, they all uh, essentially adopt the same type of protocols and rules and procedures in order to protect the data. That's that's what it's all about. So if you take that to an, to the next level, that's where the concept of binding corporate rules comes in. I mean, binding corporate rules is nearly 20 years old. 
It's not a new thing. You see what I mean? It's just it's been around for a long time. And I have a degree of regret or, or, or disappointment about the fact that it hasn't become easier because the concept again is not too difficult to understand. In the same way, an intergroup agreement is an agreement. Binding corporate rules is a set of rules. And most multinationals will have global set of rules for all sorts of things, whether you're talking of health and safety or protection of intellectual property or anything else that or ethics, anything that has a global application. So it's not too difficult to grasp the idea that if you have data flowing all over the world within the, the same organization, you could apply identical protections in terms of I know transparency or uh, data retention limits or data security measures or ability, ways to uh, help people with their data protection rights. And you put all of that into practice, but in a truly consistent way throughout the world. And then you say, we think this system we have in place meets European standards. In original directive, now the GDPR, but whatever those standards are, we think and practice suggests that this meets these standards. Can a regulator have a look at this and tell us if, if that's the case or if not what we need to tweak? And then kind of use their, their blessing, if, if, if we can call it like that, to say to the world, don't worry, because the data is, is safe with us. So I can explain it to you in one minute here. So why is it it's taking already 20 years nearly to get it past, you know, months and months and months of work and scrutiny and all that? And I think my hope is by the time I retire, I don't know when this will happen, but by the time I retire, BCR is, is a much more straightforward exercise than what it is today. Because it can be and it should be. And regulators, I think, are missing a trick here because... BCR is a way of delegating. You know, we, we were talking about the outsourcing chapter of the book. So outsourcing is about delegation, right? So delegate uh, uh, regulators could delegate compliance to big or, or, or organizations or small, but to organizations worldwide by saying, these are the rules you've, you've adopted, and we're going to take the view that you're following those rules. That's good for us. Tell us next year how it's going and just almost do it like a, like an MOT, like with a car. Once a year, you come back and tell us how it is going and we'll have a quick check. And that's it. And it would be so easy and it would make life of regulators so much easier as well that I don't know why this hasn't really become more straightforward and more common commonplace. But I'm still hoping we'll get there. Thank you. <laughs> Eduardo, what do you look for when you're hiring in privacy? I think a lot of our listeners maybe are just starting out in privacy or have done a career change. So what advice would you give them when they're going for an interview? Very good question. It's quite interesting. I mean, we we recruit very young lawyers all the time. It's difficult. If, you, if you're a young lawyer or a young professional in, a, in an area where you know, have a lot of experience, you may have maybe just read a book or... or you do done a bit of uh, charity work or something like that, or, and you don't know much. But if you show enthusiasm, if you show interest, if you show willingness to to understand these very complex issues and to to look at them from different perspectives, that is such an important 
ingredient. Then obviously you still you still need to have a brain to to put it all this in your head. But I think most people have a brain, and uh, and I think then it's just a matter of putting putting the work as well to try to digest all of these issues. And and I think one of the the challenges, but also one of the the things that make our, our area so wonderful, is that. You can never be complacent. You know, not you know, we were talking about the book again. None of the people that have written the book, or, or me included, could ever say, that's it, we've written the book, we know everything that needs to be done, that's it. That we, we don't need to learn anymore. That would be the most <laughs> stupid things we could say, because you have to be learning every day. The te- mm-hmm. you need, first, you need to learn new technology. You need to learn the way the law applies to those new technology. You need to learn how courts and regulators are reacting to to the law. And of course, there are laws being adopted all the time. That's the other thing that you need to you need to be prepared to be very dynamic in the way you look at at what you do, and not think that okay, well, I've read a book, now I can practice. That's it. This is the end of of it, and I'll just do this for another forty years, and then I retire. Mm-hmm. That's that's never going to happen. So you've got to keep learning. Jamal, you've had the opportunity to work with Eduardo, if I remember correctly. What did you like most about working with him? Yeah, so we had some mutual clients. When I was managing one of our asset management companies, they was in partnership with one of Eduardo's clients. Eduardo, we're talking about shopping centres here. It might ring a few bells. And uh, if I say Manchester, Andres, it might bring back some stories. There used to be, let's say, lots of um, exciting things happening in Manchester at those specific sites. And the stakeholders would always get in a bit of a frenzy and a panic about it. And then Eduardo would jump on the call, Eduardo would be there. He would be this really calm and collected person. And just everyone stopped all the panicking. It's like Eduardo spoken, everything's gonna be okay. And he was just that presence and that calm and coolness that Eduardo brought to those calls and to the table that I, I remember thinking, wow, that's amazing. That's that's such a great skill. There's about 12 people. There's like PR companies, there's directors. They're all going crazy. And then Eduardo just speaks. And then it's just like nothing about, there was never no problems. And I think that's what really inspired me. It's like, how can I bring that coolness to the table? And how can I get all of these people that are losing their heads around them to really just get collected and say, look, I'm here now. Everything's going to be fine. Um, Eduardo, how do you do that? <laughs> Thank you for, for reminding me of that. I think, well, first of all, I mean, I've been I've been doing this for many years, so I guess you you, you learn as you go along. And uh, when you are an advisor like that, we all like we all are. You need to quickly identify who you are advising and what their needs are. Sometimes, if they are in a, in a panic or they stress about something you need to make sure that they are able to understand what you're saying to them by, by being calm. And I said, okay, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And, and then you explain it. But, uh, and sometimes it's the opposite. Sometimes they may be too complacent and say, ah, nothing's going to happen. And then you have to kind of grab them by the lapels and say, listen, you can pay attention here because this is you're in trouble. So, uh, but you learn uh, whether you, you are, you're supposed to be calm, a calming uh, force or, or someone that grabs someone by, by the lapels. But then what I think is sort of universal in, in this sense is that you need to know what, what you're contributing. So you, you're being hired or, or you're, you're being asked to help because someone needs help with something and you know what you can contribute, you know, the, the limits also of what you can contribute. But whatever you whatever it is that you're contributing, then 
that's your job. You know, that, that, and you say, okay, this is what I think is happening. This is what I think the solution could be or the, the different solutions. And if you go down this route, this might happen or this you go. This. So I think being aware of, of how you can be most helpful is what I, I think I would I would recommend in terms of acting or, or being able to keep your call and to be able to to be helpful and to be uh, to advise in a way that uh, can be put into practice. Thank you. So key takeaway, folks, is have awareness of the situation, have awareness of what you bring to the table, and also have awareness of where, how far your remit can go and where it actually stops. And once you get that clarity, you can bring that coolness to all of your board meetings going forward. Yeah, I mean, can I say one more thing? You made a really good point that the being aware is also about listening. Because I think we as advisors, we have a strong opinion because we've learned a lot and we think we know a lot. And therefore, we see ourselves as, oh, here's the solution. But it's really, really important to, to, to listen and to understand the context of a particular situation and, uh, or a problem and to understand what the client, what a client is trying to achieve. And I think being a, a very knowledgeable lawyer or an expert at something is, can be completely useless if you don't listen about, about the problem you're trying to resolve. So I think that's another important ingredient. Absolutely. It's one of the things I, I, I make sure that I did a part of my colleagues is make sure you understand them before you want them to understand you. And always confirm, this is what I've understood. Is that correct? And make sure you're on the same page and get the buy and establish the, I call it establish the baseline. And once you've established the baseline, everyone's on the same page and they're more open to listen to your ideas. And like you said, you are there to help them. They're, they're, they're paying you uh, to help them. They want your help. So you know what you bring to the table and just have that confidence to know that you are here to be able to serve to the best of your ability. Our last question for you, which I think is the last, but Jamal may spring another one on you. So we'll put we'll say penultimate. What advice do you have for privacy professionals aspiring to make their careers as outstanding as yours? Oh. <laughs> wow. Well, first of all, don't, don't don't think that you need to have an objective in a way, like say, oh, I want to have a, a, a career like this. You just follow, in a sense, follow your instinct in the sense that from the point of view of having a career, first of all, I think the first piece of advice is, whilst I'm saying follow your instinct, if you want to have a, a career or something that is going to allow you to earn a living, it has to be something that there is a market for. So I think uh, and I, I think that goes without saying. There is definitely a market, I can tell you, there is definitely a market for data protection and privacy professionals of all kinds, and not just not just lawyers. And, and you know, you have to know a bit about everything. You need to be about the law. You need to know about management. You need to know about technology. You need to know about people and and all of that. But other than that, I think it's just it's what I was saying earlier. Have the the enthusiasm for learning and for keeping yourself aware of of what is going on, and then apply common sense and apply your practical mindset in order to resolve problems. Ultimately, in in our profession, it's all about resolving situations. Sometimes there is a problem or sometimes there isn't a problem, but could could something could become a problem. And I think if you if you approach every situation as how can I contribute to to resolve it or make the most of it, then 
I think that's probably a, a good way to, to go. Thank you. Great advice, Eduardo. So uh, we've spoken about domesticating animals. We've spoken about international data transfers. We've spoken about the textbook. Eduardo's given his top tips. He's answered Emma Martin's question. He's answered Anandia's question. He's answered Ashutosh's question. He's answered lots of our questions. And Eduardo, I just want to say thank you very much for making the time to be here with us today. I know there were so many technical challenges and we've kept you for a lot longer than we promised. So I really want to say thank you so much. It's been really valuable. Thank you. Always a pleasure. It's been great. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, like and share so you're notified when a new episode is released. Remember to join the Privacy Pros Academy Facebook group where we answer your questions. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you're leaving with some great things that will add value on your journey as a world-class Privacy Pro. Please leave us a four or five star review. And if you'd like to appear on a future episode of our podcast or have a suggestion for a topic you'd like to hear more about, please send an email to team at kzient.co.uk. Until next time, peace be with you.